I also want to say uh, thank you again. It's just so wonderful to be here and to see so many faces who we love and who have loved us well. And we're very grateful to be uh, invited back here. And my family is here today, which I'm particularly excited about. And so um, I wanted to start off just by saying thanks because it's a gift to be here and to open God's word with you, even though uh, it is um, what we're going to talk about today is personally uh, rather convicting. So we've uh, discussed this story for two weeks now. The parable of the prodigal son is what it's typically called. And now we've, uh, even if you weren't here last week, then certainly you've probably heard this parable before because it's very famous. And even if you're not a Christian, I'm sure you've probably heard this parable at one point or another. And uh, I wonder, as you consider kind of our three main characters, the father, the younger brother, and the elder brother, which one of those folks do you most identify with? And, and you can't say the father. You know, is it the younger brother or the older brother? Because some of you, you know, you may identify with the younger brother. You've said, you know, you've looked at God and you've said, hey, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to be the master of my own life and I'm going to live my way. And as a matter of fact, you might be right there right now. And if that's you, I'm really glad you're here because I think this parable has something to say to you. And maybe you've been there. But then you felt that hunger and that longing that it talks about in the parable. And you've come home to your heavenly father. You came home with your head hanging low only to discover the embrace and the rejoicing of the father. And if that's you, that's wonderful. That's so exciting. And I'm glad you're here because I believe this parable has something to say to you as well. Or maybe you're the older brother. And when you read this parable, one of your first reactions is, this isn't fair. What, what about his life of dutiful service? And you're kind of focused on that. In fact, you may be, even right now, outside the Heavenly Father's home and not aware of it. Or maybe you're an older brother who's come home but you haven't quite learned how to enjoy the music and the dancing yet. you still got some older brother tendencies that haven't quite been worked out. So do you know which one of those four places describes you? Because it's really important to know where you are. If, if you're in category two or three or four, you need to hear what Jesus has to say because he's speaking this parable specifically to the elder brother. And if you're in category three or four, you're an elder brother. And if you're in category two, you've come home. You have to be careful because there's a real tendency to become an elder brother. And elder brothers tend to get things mixed up sometimes. Important things. Things uh, about sin. About salvation. About love. I mean, these are central components of the Christian message. And if you're in category one, then I believe Jesus has something to say to you, too. Maybe you're over here in category one because you just don't really 
care about spiritual things. You want to be master of your own life. But maybe part of the reason why you feel that way is because you've encountered some traditional understanding of sin. An understanding of sin that says, sin is a list of do's and don'ts. It's just this kind of cold, abstract, arbitrary list. And maybe it's been used to put you down and lift someone else up. And so you've rejected that and rebelled from that. Or maybe you've encountered some traditional understanding of salvation. That salvation means living a certain kind of lifestyle. It necessitates a certain kind of lifestyle that you feel like, oh, I can't achieve that. Or you feel like, it's kind of haughty. I don't want that. Or kind of bland. And so you've rejected that. Or maybe you feel like, maybe you feel like, um, You've encountered this traditional understanding of Christian love, and it's angered you because it's kind of been defined by, oh, yeah, there's Christians. They always talk about love, this wonderful ideal of love. But I never see it really practically and powerfully worked out in their lives, and so you've rejected that. Well, there's a dynamic going on here in this parable, and this kind of traditional understanding I've been telling you about, um, older brothers tend to contribute to it, and younger brothers tend to run away from it. But Jesus, Jesus' definition of the gospel challenges the traditional understanding of the religious folks of his day and of of, of our day, because he confronts their superficial understanding of God. And because Jesus gives us a true definition of Christianity, of the gospel, we must listen to him. And so we must listen to how he redefines sin and how he redefines salvation and how he redefines love. Not that he defined it wrongly at first, but that those things get obscured by the younger brothers and older brothers. And he is uncovering them and revealing them for what they really are. And as we discuss what Jesus has to say about these three subject, uh, subjects. I think that he's going to challenge us as well. So firstly, in this parable, Jesus surprises us by redefining sin. and telling the story, he tells of a bad son, and he tells of a good son. But the surprise is, both sons are alienated from the father, separated from him, pictured outside. Because sin is not about being bad or being good. It's about an attitude of the heart. It's not just about breaking the law, but it's more about rejecting the lawgiver. You know, the, old, the younger son, in a very flagrant way, says, I don't need you. But the older brother says the exact same thing. By obeying the law so fastidiously, so meticulously, he's saying, I, I don't need you. I can make myself righteous. Thank you very much. And that self-righteousness is so poisonous. It damages. It damages the person who is self-righteous and the people who look at that person to try to understand what righteousness is all about. Because self-righteousness, it skews our vision. It blinds us. Listen to how the older brother's self-righteousness infects everything he sees. Listen to his language. I never, I never disobeyed you. You never gave me so much as a young goat. 
He's saying, you never gave me what I deserved. It's this attitude of the heart that he has that's so focused on self. And then he turns from looking at how great he is to how terrible his brother is. And he sees everything in the blackest terms. He. he, Oh, he's over here. He. He devoured your property. Really? All of it? He devoured your property on prostitutes. Where'd that come from? Where'd you get? You didn't even talk to him. It doesn't say that. But he's judging the motives of the heart, which is something that older brothers tend to do. But only God can do that. You see, our pride causes us to look down on others, our self-righteousness, and to see them in the worst possible light. And it skews our vision by inflating every fault we see in others. All while we're blind to our very own. But self-righteousness doesn't just skew our vision. It also destroys relationship. See, the older brother's sinful, self-centered attitude of entitlement poisons his relationship with his father and with his brother. So he remains sulking outside the party, making a very clear statement to the father and all those who are with him. I'm not for I'm not in support of that. And what does the father do? The father comes out to him. The father breaks through the barrier he's trying to set up. But the older brother's self-righteousness doesn't let him go in. Instead, he points the finger at his younger brother. And he, he, do you see what he calls him in the passage? He says, hey, look, this son of yours. Again, distancing himself in that relationship. This son of yours, he devoured your property. He won't even acknowledge him as a brother. And what does the father say in response to that? The father calls his older son, child, you are always with me, but this brother of yours. You see, he's restoring relationship. In that moment, the father is trying to restore the relationships that the older brother is trying to destroy. Now, I know you guys understand this, at least at some base level, uh, because anyone who's ever driven a car or been in a car understands this. I know you've been out there, you've been driving down the road, you're headed to your destination, and then all of a sudden, whoa, brakes. Because someone in front of you is driving way too slow. And you start feeling like, gosh, maybe this... You know, this person's going to turn soon, but they don't. And then you just feel like, why is this person driving so slow? Gosh, they're a fool. You know, and we get frustrated with them. And then finally, we turn on to Oleander, where it's four lanes. And some car comes zipping by us. And we feel like, oh, my God, did you see that red sports car? That person is crazy. You know, and before we know it, everybody who drives slower than us is a fool. And everybody who drives faster than us is crazy. And so what's happened in that moment? Like in that moment, we have, we have become the standard. We've, we've forgotten about the law. We've forgotten about the motives behind the law. And we have become the bar. And then we tend to think about these people in the blackest terms. You know, we, we think about, this fool in front of me needs to go to driving school, probably can't see right. You know? Or... 
person in the red sports car. Do you see people in red sports cars? They're always the crazy drivers. And we never give them the benefit of the doubt. We never say, wow, maybe they're rushing to an emergency. Even though I've had to do that in my car. We never say, well, maybe they're lost and they just need some help. I've been there, done that. But when we make ourselves the standard, it skews our vision. And all we see are fools or crazy people. Because that's what self-righteousness does to us. And in life, when Christians behave like that, it's called self-righteousness. And it's so poisonous. Because this self-righteousness, it can be particularly harmful to non-Christians who are looking towards you and me, towards church people, to see how, how do we define sin. And when we define sin in terms of right and wrong or good or bad, it becomes so easy to make ourselves the bar. And we begin to see non-Christians, or really anybody who lives a little differently from us, as fools or crazy. Because our self-righteousness has skewed our vision and it's poisoned our relationships. So what lens are you looking through? If you're looking through the lens of do's and don'ts, you're not going to see the gospel of grace. I mean, it's certainly easy. It's easier to follow a list. That's the draw of being an elder brother. But we're called to follow a person. And he doesn't ask for our good works. He asks for our life. And we all know that self-righteousness can be particularly harmful to Christians as well. As a recovering older brother, in my self-righteousness, I often tend to look at those closest to me in the worst possible terms. How can I do that when their glory and their beauty is right there? But in my self-centeredness, I'm blind to it. I wonder if this has ever happened to you where you're speaking to your spouse or your child or a parent or a friend and you find yourself saying, kind of like the elder brother, and you always do. Well, you never listen when you never go to do it. And what you're feeling but probably don't finish with is, and I deserve that or I deserve better. You see, that's your self-righteousness speaking. It's the opposite of humility. And the more you find that you hate it in others, the more that's probably a sign you've got it in yourself. You're seeing the speck in their eye and you're blind to the plank that's skewing your vision and destroying your relationships. So Jesus redefines sin as an attitude of the heart that says, I'm in charge and bad people and good people need Jesus to change that attitude. So Jesus also redefines salvation. Everything hangs on this. Being saved. Who goes to heaven? This parable gives a shocking answer. If you ask the average person on the street, hey, who goes to heaven? How do you get to heaven? I'm sure the most common answer would probably be some form of, well, good people do. I mean, that's what the scribes and Pharisees thought, right? They defined good as keeping the Jewish law. But who's left out of the party? At the end of the parable, it's the good brother. What is Jesus saying? Well, he's redefining salvation. 
He's saying good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. How do we showcase that? How do we, how do we show forth that view of salvation? What, what, sh- what demonstrates, what shows salvation to the world? Well, I'm sure there are many things I thought of too. Repentance demonstrates salvation. Why does repentance demonstrate salvation? Because it's clearly a work of God. I think the Westminster divines were on to something here. When they wrote about repentance and God's calling, they said that it's a work of God's spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and renewing our wills, He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. I love that word embrace. That the father persuades and enables us not to honor him, not to serve him, but to embrace him. You only embrace people that you really love. And when you turn and repent and embrace Jesus Christ, like the younger brother hugging the father, feeling the weight of his sin and misery, you're demonstrating a beautiful facet of salvation. You see, salvation generates a certain lifestyle. The older brother has it totally backwards. He thinks it's a certain lifestyle that generates salvation. He says, all these years I've served you and I've never disobeyed. But salvation is not a result of your good works. Your good works are a result of your salvation. It's the exact same thing that David just said earlier up here. It's the message of the gospel. There's only one name under heaven by which men can be saved. There's only one door that leads from being lost to found, that leads from being dead to alive. And it's not your good works. So what else shows forth salvation? Well, I think that joyful obedience demonstrates salvation. You see, you have those two components have to be wed together. You have the younger brother who joyfully sets out trying to uh, gain autonomy and control of his life, but he's disobedient. And then you have the older brother who's over here. Oh, boy, he's, he's trying to gain autonomy and control over his life by being obedient. But boy, there's, there's no joy. All these years I served you. You never gave me. You never celebrated me. All obedience and no joy. But it reveals something. It reveals that his obedience was for something. It was a means to an end. And when he didn't get what he thought he had earned, he was angry. Everything the father had was his, but the elder brother's lack of joy suggests he wanted something else. He was not content with that. He was set on himself. So Tim Keller tells this great story about a king, a nobleman, and a peasant. Now the peasant's a gardener. And he has this little garden outside the walls of the kingdom. And... This peasant gardener uh, has this incredible yield of carrots. 
And so he takes his biggest, brightest, huge orange carrot, his best one, and he carries it to the king as a gift to the king to just joyfully celebrate him. And he takes it to the king, and he brings it to him, and he puts it before him, and he says, listen, I'm just a gardener, but this is the best crop I've ever had, and this was the best pick of uh, of the yield here, and I'm giving it to you. And the king says, wow, thank you. What a gift. You know what? I'm going to give you a parcel of land inside the kingdom walls and let you farm there, and you can bring more uh, of your great food to me and to the people of our kingdom. And he says, wow, thanks. And all the while, there's been a nobleman who's been watching this happen, and he goes, hmm, And so he goes down to the stables, and he gets his finest horse, the horse that he loves, his most beautiful prized horse, and he brings it up to the king. And he says, King, uh, I have this gift for you that I'd like to give you, and uh, it's my most prized stallion, and uh, it's probably worth about 3,000 carats, but uh, I'd like to give it to you. And the king says, well, thank you. You can go put it in my stables. And his face kind of falls. And he says, anything else? And the king says, oh, oh, I see what's going on here. Let me explain to you. You see, the gardener was giving me the carrot. But you were giving yourself the horse. The gardener's gift demonstrated joyful obedience, but the nobleman's gift revealed that it was a means to an end. He needed to repent from that focus on himself. He needed something to change his heart. As the world looks at us, what are we proclaiming about the gift of salvation? Are we saying that a certain lifestyle leads to salvation? If we vote this way, if we parent this way, if we discipline this way, if we abstain from these things, whatever your hot button is, are our lives saying that that is the road to salvation? Because if so, we've become the Pharisee, holding up our moral resume, not realizing that it's the very thing that's separating us from the Father. Or are we saying that salvation comes from embracing the Savior and following him with our lives and letting him turn our black hearts into hearts of repentance and hearts of joyful obedience. And I know that this may be hard for some of you. Hard to hear. Because some of you may feel like, you know, you've served God all your life. You don't even remember a day apart from him. And this parable seems so unfair. I understand that because I haven't lived my whole life for God, and yet I still feel like that. I feel like the older brother must have felt. And if you're feeling that, I want you to lean forward and to hear two things. First, those of you who have long served God and been kept from gross sins, you have a great deal to be thankful for, but nothing to proudly boast of. You see, your righteous life is a gift. It was a gift to you, And it's a gift to us. It's a gift to the world because God's been furthering his kingdom through you. And thank you. And let me affirm you again in point two. That you're right. 
The gospel is unfair. God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He saved us, not by any works of righteousness that we have done, but because of his great mercy. It is by grace you have been saved, through faith. It's not by your works, so you can't boast. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The wages of sin, what we earn for our sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. And I could go on. We should be thankful that it's not fair. Because if it was fair, we would all be in so much trouble. But Jesus redefines salvation not in terms of good works, but in terms of repentance and a relationship of joyful obedience that comes from a changed heart. So he redefines sin, he redefines salvation, and now he redefines love. Who does God love? How does God love? That would be another very fascinating question to kind of ask to the general public. In our parable, if you had asked that to the two groups of people there, the bad people and the good people, the scribes and the Pharisees would have said, oh, who does God love? Well, them. And the scribes and the Pharisees would have said, who does God love? Oh, us. You know, I mean, they felt like they were God's chosen people. They felt like uh, they knew how to earn God's love and how to keep themselves holy. But Jesus challenges their idea that God's love responds to human merit. Jesus offers a radically different picture of God's love. Because in this parable, the father's love always takes the initiative. So notice the father, he goes out to both sons And not only does the father go out to both sons, but the father goes out to both sons when neither deserve it. This is accentuated in the Greek text because it's the same word there in verse 28 that the older brother did not go in while the father did go out. He came out. He goes out to the older brother and entreats him to come in. It was the father who initiates the music and the dancing and the celebration. The father is taking the initiative to invite the older brother personally to the banquet. This is just like the parable of the wedding banquet that happens one chapter before in Luke 14. He's inviting them in. Will he come? And the father's love also overcomes our sin. The older brothers were wrong in thinking that they had to make themselves holy for the father to love them. When the father runs to embrace the younger son, I mean, it was culturally preposterous. It was, it was disgraceful. And guess what? It's also culturally disgraceful then and now to host a party and then to have to leave it to go find your son. But that's just what the father does. The son's sin does not stop him. The father's love overcomes his distance. And he goes out and entreats him. Child, don't harden your heart. Stop disgracing your father and disgracing others. All that's mine is yours. You can just hear Jesus' words, Oh Israel, how I've longed to gather you under my wings. But you are not willing. <clears throat> so what does this love look like practically? Um, practically acted out in our lives. I think of a great picture of two of my friends who are married, and they told this story that one time 
as married couples sometimes do, they got into a bit of an argument. And it did not uh, get resolved well, like, you know, you may read about in some of the marriage manuals. No, it um, dissolved instead of resolved. And, you know, the husband kind of stomped off in a huff. And then after realizing uh, that he was wrong, he realized, you know what, I need to go right back to my wife. And there's some things that I need to confess to her just about my own bitterness and my own anger. And I need to apologize and just confess these things that I was harboring in my heart. And so he turns and he walks over to her and he says, listen, there's some things that I need to confess to you. I and she went, oh, before he went any further, she said, come here. And she made him put his head on her shoulder and she hugged him. And she said, okay, go ahead. And that's such a beautiful picture. And the reason why it's a beautiful picture of love is because that husband recognized that God's love takes the initiative. And he was going to have to take the initiative to go to his wife. And she gave a beautiful picture that love overcomes sin. She took this posture that said, no matter what you say, here you are in my embrace. No matter what you confess, you're in my embrace. And the only reason that those two people can love each other like that is because they've been loved by a heavenly father who's like that. And the world needs to see that kind of love. You know, the majority of the world will not hear about the love of God from a preacher or by reading the Bible. The majority of the world will learn about God's love by watching people who call themselves Christians. So what are we communicating to the world about the love of God? Are we showing the world that God's love takes the initiative? I think Christ's community certainly is in one respect. And this gets me really excited. I think of your relationship with New Beginnings. You see, Paul Phillips and Robert Campbell took the initiative to form a relationship because they understood that God's love took the initiative to form the relationship in their lives. And now these two churches are demonstrating, uh, you know, albeit imperfectly, that the Father's love can overcome the bitter sin of racism, which still haunts Wilmington to an alarming degree. You see, that's a picture of God's love that the world needs to see, a potent picture, because no government plans, no social programs, no political party has really been able to achieve that, that kind of true reconciliation. This is clearly a work of God's love. And when we don't take the initiative and don't attempt to overcome sin with love, we don't reflect the love of God very clearly. It's so much easier to retreat into our Christian fortress with other people that share all the same views as we do. But that's not love. It's not God's love. God's love is a love that moves into the lives of our neighbors and moves into the lives of our co-workers and our family in a beautiful and powerful way and shows people that God's love can overcome any sin. So in this parable, Jesus redefines sin to correct our skewed vision and to restore our relationships. He redefines salvation as something demonstrated 
in repentance and joyful obedience, not something earned by it. And he redefines love not in terms of religiosity, but a love that takes the initiative and overcomes sin. And has it struck you that while telling this story, that Jesus is in the process of enacting it? Did you notice that? Like, think about it, that there Jesus is standing in front of the older brothers, in front of the scribes and the Pharisees, and he's entreating them with this kind language to come in and enjoy the gracious benefits of the sacrifice that he's preparing, just like the father in the story is entreating the elder brother. And then the story ends. Well, what happens? Did the elder brother go in? Did he stay outside? We had an argument in our family one time about where we thought he ended up. Well, Jesus leaves us to wrestle with that. But it doesn't take much consideration before we recognize that in real life, there are no righteous elder brothers. Because as the Bible tells us, there are none righteous. No, not even one, as the psalmist says. Only the God-man, Jesus Christ. And here's the amazing thing, is that where the firstborn of Luke 15 failed, the firstborn of Luke 2 succeeded. You see, the firstborn of Luke 15, the elder brother, became indignant towards his father and demanded his rights and became indignant towards his brother. But the firstborn of Mary, he was the truly righteous elder brother. And he loved his father. And he gave up his rights. And then he went to the distant country in pursuit of his younger brothers and sisters. In pursuit of older brothers and sisters as well. And he rescued them. Going out to them, calling them in. And he brought them to this feast. And the central sacrifice at this feast was himself. Where Jesus on the cross shows us the ugliness of sin, the cost of salvation, and the extent of his love. Older brothers and younger brothers, come home to the love of your heavenly father. Let's pray. Father, we marvel at your love. It always surprises us. It always um, kind of confounds us. When we think we have understood, we recognize that we are far from understanding. But Lord, I pray that you would penetrate our hearts and that we would come home and that our lives would demonstrate that repentance, that joyful obedience that comes from living in the embrace of our Heavenly Father. Thank you for embracing us when we least deserved it. Amen.